Greetings, family. We're encountering, embarking, I should say, on a 27-week, if God allows us, continuous education about the big book study. This one's recorded live over 27 weeks during winter, spring, 2015, 16. Took two years to compile this by Tim B. And here's week one. Let's go ahead and pray. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and do the third step prayer, please. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that would help of thy power, of thy love, of thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Thank you again. High five for you guys. No one's told you they love you. I love you. I care. Pray for you all the time that we are in it to win it and to win others. Amen. Here we go. Thanks, guys. Tim, alcoholic. All right. So we have ourselves a new cycle here. We're going to be starting off with the preface. Page 11, Roman numeral XI. We have a long read tonight, so I'm going to hustle a little bit tonight. This is the fourth edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So just as a side note, this is printed in 2001. The first edition appeared in April 1939. And in the following 16 years, more than 300,000 copies went into circulation. The second edition, published in 1955, reached a total of more than 1,150,500 copies. The third edition, which came off the press in 1976, achieved a circulation of approximately 19,550,000 in all formats. A current number uh, that we have right now is that we've printed approximately 35 million uh, copies. And we print approximately 1 million copies a year. I did the math, and that's 20,000 copies a week. So we're really really popping out the books. Uh, I was down in uh, Atlanta for the International, which obviously are every five years. And uh, the 35th millionth copy uh, was given to the uh, Sister Ignatia's religious order. Two nuns came up and accepted that as as a token of appreciation kind of interesting because this book has become the basic text which means it's a study book right because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery i underline this now there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it It's talking about the whole book, not just the first 164 pages. There is a resistance of any radical changes. Therefore, the first portion of this book, the first 164 pages of this volume, describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second third and fourth editions some of you may not see the word largely in that sentence and that just means that your book your your fourth edition book 
was printed prior to 2006. After 2006, they stuck that word in to be more accurate because there are some changes in the first 164 pages. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. Dr. Silkworth died in 1950. That's what they're referring to there. Dr. Silkworth was the attending physician at uh, Towns Hospital, Central Park West, 292, 293 Central Park West, which was an upscale, upmarket detox. And he is the doctor that attended to uh, Bill Wilson originally and many of our uh, New York uh, pioneers, right? So um, the second edition added the appendices, and you can see the appendices on the page uh, right before this, uh, page 10, Roman numeral X. Those are the appendices at the bottom there. There are seven of them. The 12 traditions and the directions for getting in touch with AA. The 12 traditions are all listed on page 561. And the 12 traditions were voted in as we have them listed here in 1950 at our uh, first uh, international in Cleveland. This were voted in. This, this was accepted by the delegates, right? But the chief change was in the section of personal stories, which was expanded to, re to reflect the fellowship's growth. So you see what it's saying here. We changed the stories to match what our current uh, newcomers like. Right? We want to be flexible. We want to reach them. What's the purpose of the stories? Identification. Bill's story, Dr. Bob's nightmare, and one other personal history from the first edition were retained intact. Three were edited and one was retitled. New versions of two stories were written with new titles. Thirty completely new stories were added. And the story section was divided into three parts under the same headings that are now used. In the third edition, part one, Pioneers of AA, was left unchanged. Nine of the stories in part two, they stopped in time, were carried over from the second edition. Eight new stories were added. In part three, they lost nearly all. Eight stories were retained and five new ones were added. So any story that was removed, where is it? Experience, strength, and hope. You can buy the book, right? AA produces that book. Every story removed is put into, uh, into that publication. <clears throat> the fourth edition includes the 12 concepts of world service. So we have steps, we have traditions, and we have 12 concepts. The 12 concepts relate to service above the group level. They were written in 1962 by Bill, and you can find them in the back of the book at 574. Page 574, you can read the concepts. Again, written in 1962. Uh, I don't know if I finished that sentence. The fourth edition includes the 12 concepts of world, services, of world service and revises the three sections of personal stories as follows. One new story has been added to part one and two that originally appeared in part three have been repositioned there. Six stories have been deleted. Six of the stories in part two have been carried over. 11 new ones have been added and 11 taken out. Part three now includes 12 new stories. 
Eight were removed in addition to the two that were transferred to part one. This is an excellent test for a newcomer. I use this as a sponsor all the time. If they can read that and understand that, they're not alcoholic. <laughs> all changes made over the years in the big book, AA members' fond nickname for this volume, have had the same purpose to represent the current membership of Alcoholics Anonymous more accurately, thereby to reach more alcoholics. So very important statement. I, I highlighted that. Any change to the book has been to reach more alcoholics. And uh, everybody know where we get the nickname Big Book? Well, it was originally a much bigger book, right? And we hired an editor, non-AA editor, and trimmed the book down to its current size, approximately its current size. Almost all the trimming came from the stories. You'll also notice that almost all the stories are the same length. They're about eight pages. Um, and the other reason was we used very thick paper. It was a little bit cheaper. And another reason why we used the thicker paper, sometimes you'll see in, in scripture-type books, very fine paper, and they're very easily ripped. So they knew that alcoholics were like completely out of control. So they went with the heavier paper so they would withstand, you know, you think you got more bang for your buck, you know. If you have a drinking problem, we hope that you may pause in reading one of the 42 personal stories and think, yes, that happened to me, or more important, yes, I felt like that, or most important, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. So it does say that there's 42 personal stories, but that means they're not counting Bill's story, which is 43, right? But in the back of the book, there's 42. Page one, Bill's story, we can count that too. Forward to the first edition. This is the forward as it appeared in the first printing of the first edition, 1939. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered Recovered from what? From a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It only appears as though it's hopeless when you know that there's a solution. If you don't know there's a solution, it's a hopeless state of mind and body. It only appears as though, and that's going to come up later on. It only appears as though it's hopeless because we're going to talk about how to get out of the problem. Right? And... Um, this is the first place we see that it's multiple authors. Every uh, 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 revision, and as this was being written primarily by Bill Wilson, but every single revision that was done to a manuscript, both Akron as a group and Brooklyn, New York as a group, voted on how to change things and you know rephrase things, put, put that out, pull that out, add that back in, that kind of thing. So it's multiple authors. To show other alcoholics, and it's italicized, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. In other words, you don't need any other book. It's all in here. That's what the hope is. Turns out I think they're correct. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we are sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. So 
noting that alcohol only appears in the first step. It's actually a design for living that anybody could benefit from. And that's the point it's making there um, in uh, in the Bill Wilson, uh, the Bill W. documentary. At the end, it lists that there are over 60 anonymous fellowships that use our steps. And, and the only word that would potentially be changed is in the first step. Right. Al-Anon would say what? We're powerless over the alcoholic. It is important that we remain anonymous, meaning eternally. We remain anonymous because we are too few at present to handle the overwhelming number of personal appeals, which may result from this publication. Being mostly business or professional folk, we could not well carry on our occupations in such an event. We would like it understood that our alcoholic work is an avocation. An avocation is a hobby. A vocation is your career, right? And what is, what is it being an avocation? What does it protect us from? Big shotism, right? I got all the answers, right? This, this is my thing, right? That's what it protects us from, it, which, is, which is an element of humility, which is one of the purposes of the book, Smash Ego, right? When reading, excuse me, when writing or speaking publicly about alcoholism, we urge each of our fellowship to admit his personal name, designating himself instead as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very earnestly, we ask the press also to observe this request, for otherwise we shall be greatly handicapped. We are not an organization in the conventional sense of the word. There are no, see, see where you recognize this from now, right? There are no fees or dues whatsoever. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. And, and obviously in 1950, when we put in uh, the official traditions, the word honest was dropped because of the definition. How do you, who decides who's being honest or not, right? That could cause a lot of debate and could be used as a little bit of a weapon, I think. We are not allied with any particular faith, sect, or denomination, nor do we oppose anyone. We simply wish to be helpful to those who are afflicted. We shall be interested to hear from those who are getting results from this book, particularly from those who have commenced work with other alcoholics. It's important to be sober. This is what that sentence just said. It's important to be sober, but it's more important to now pass that on. We should like to be helpful to such cases. Inquiry by scientific, medical, and religious societies will be welcomed. Alcoholics Anonymous, so what do we see by it being signed that way? It's an anonymous book. No one's taking credit for authorship. Forward to second edition. Figures given in this forward describe the fellowship as it was in 1955. Since the original forward of this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Our earliest printing voiced the hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous at his destination. Already, continues the early text, Twos and threes and fives of us have sprung up in other communities. Sixteen years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, 
Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Groups are to be found in each of the United States and all the provinces of Canada. AA has flourishing communities in the British Isles, the Scandinavian countries, South Africa, South America, Mexico, Alaska, Australia, and Hawaii. All told, personal be- excuse me, promising beginnings have been made in some 50 foreign countries and U.S. possessions. Some are just now taking shape in Asia. Many of our friends encourage us by saying that this is but a beginning, only the augury of a much larger future ahead. And an augury, of course, I looked up, is a sign, a sign of much of a much larger future ahead. The spark that was to flare into the first AA group was struck at Akron, Ohio in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. And of course, we're talking about Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith. Six months earlier, the broker, Bill Wilson, had been relieved of his drinking obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend. So the alcoholic friend is Abby Thatcher, who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. And the Oxford groups were a Protestant, non-denominational gathering, fellowship, missionary-type fellowship, who would um, have try to elicit some sort of spiritual uh, experience or awakening, and then their sole job was to pass that on. That was the goal behind it. Frank Buckman, the founder of it, the international founder of it, was Lutheran, and the U.S. Uh, 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 primary um, leader was Reverend Sam Shoemaker at Calvary Church in Manhattan on Central Park South, and uh, he was Episcopalian. And uh, they, uh, it was a first century Christian fellowship was its original name, ultimately called the Oxford Groups, because one of the things that was a belief of the, of the group was you change society from the top down. You change from, from high society to lower society. You didn't start at the bottom. And uh, what uh, Frank Buckman would do is he'd go to various... Um, uh, uh, upscale schools, Ivy League schools, uh, Oxford University, and they were traveling at one time as a group, and the, um, the uh, porter wrote on everybody's bag, there were little tags on everybody's bag, Oxford Group, and they picked up that handle then and ran with it. The media used Oxford Group as their name, and that became their, their actual name. He had also been greatly helped by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism who is now accounted no less than a medical saint by AA members and whose story of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. From this doctor, the broker had learned the grave nature of alcoholism, meaning it's progressive and fatal. Though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford groups. So the tenets are their beliefs. It, 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 uh, they, they are, um, they, are the, uh, they didn't have steps. 
they had tenants of which they would try and follow. And somebody went through the time of going through Ann Smith's diary and found that there were at least 28 tenants. So see what it said there? It said, though he could not accept all the tenants of the Oxford groups, meaning Bill Wilson, he was convinced of the need for, and now here's five of the tenants, right? The five C's we talk about, the Oxford five C's. Watch this. Moral inventory, confession of personality defects, restitution to those harmed, helpfulness to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God. So the five C's that you commonly hear in, in, uh, uh, when discussing historical uh, Oxford Group stuff is confidence, confession, conviction, conversion, continuance. I'll tell you later on if you want to write that down. And I just wanted to highlight in that last sentence, the second part of the half sent, uh, second half of that last sentence, and the necessity of belief in, that's faith, and dependence upon, that's trust. Two different things. One's much deeper than the other. One you prove. Prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic. I underline that because it's not completely true. We're going to see what it says right after this, right? So let's see what it just said. It said the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help another alcoholic. But he had succeeded only in keeping sober himself, means he failed. Let's see what he learns then. The broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. See the difference? If you don't, look at it at home. It's, it's so important. The al that alcoholic to turned, out, turned out to be the Akron physician. This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy, remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. This seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, not casual, not when it comes up, not when somebody asks you, strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. So we get sober on the steps, we stay sober on 12, bringing it to someone else. Our whole purpose is to do good 12-step work. Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically 
upon alcoholics arriving in the ward of the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. They're talking about Bill Dotson. Um, he had been, I believe, uh, in the uh, detox eight times in the last six months. He considered himself hopeless. And uh, to have, a, to have a, uh, a transcendence, a psychic change, a complete rewiring, uh, that quickly uh, even surprised Bill and Dr. Bob, right? Um, but, you know, if I had to change one word, if I had to change one word, I would change one word in this sentence. And it would be their very first successful case. Because the two, the two of them had tried on two other people prior to that. Dr. Roy McKay failed on, with him. And uh, Eddie Riley, and originally, uh, initially failed with him also. But he got sober later on, so we'll call him a success. So Dr. Roy McKay and Eddie Riley were before Bill Dotson. He never had another drink. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. When the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, That, though no one realized it at the time. One other little historical thing I would have loved for it to have been in there is uh, Ernie Galbraith was, uh, was uh, AA number four. So when Bill goes back to New York, he's staying in Akron, right? He goes back to New York in the fall. There was actually four of them. Um, a second small group prop promptly took shape in New York to be followed in 1937 with the start of a third at Cleveland. And uh, who started uh, our third group in Cleveland? Clarence Snyder. Clarence Snyder, the home brewmeister. You can read his story in Experience, Strength, and, and Hope. I like that he, that he made his own booze. Besides these, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron or New York who were trying to form groups in other cities. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. And anybody know what that number was? 40. Correct. Thank you, Gail. It was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message. See that? It's plural. It's not Bill's message. It means it's the message that they've all agreed upon. Everybody's on board, right? To place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore, bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. So it was actually about, and we can debate the numbers, but just going with this stat right here, 99 men and one woman. One woman. And that's why our book was not originally called 100 Men. That was, that was the original title that we were going to call it. And we had one gal with a, about a year sobriety, Florence Rankin, and she said like, oh, time out. Can't do that. Right. And there's a little backstory there, which we'll leave alone right now. But um, uh, that's how we ended up choosing Alcoholics Anonymous. But you'll note that the, the, the text didn't change then. They couldn't change the text at that time. In the book, it makes the assumption that the alcoholic is male. Right. 
The fledgling society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. The flying blind period ended and AA entered a new phase of its pioneering time. With the appearance of the new book, a great deal began to happen. Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick, the noted clergyman, reviewed it with approval. In the fall of 1939, Fulton Erzler, then editor of Liberty, printed a piece in his magazine called Alcoholics and God. This brought a rush of 800 frantic inquiries into the little New York office, which, meanwhile, had been established. Each inquiry was painstakingly answered. Pamphlets and books were sent out. Businessmen traveling out of existing groups were referred to these prospective newcomers. New groups started up, and it was found, to the astonishment of everyone, that AA's message could be transmitted in the mail as well as by word of mouth. And what's a little interesting about that was they were very, very surprised. They didn't know if it was going to work or not. But they, before the book was printed, they sent out a bunch of uh, manuscripts for approval to, to various doctors and, and religious folk. And uh, somehow one ends up in the hand of an alcoholic's mother on the West Coast, San Francisco, I believe. And uh, she ultimately reads it and then gives it to her son. And her son is struck sober by reading the manuscript, reading the text. And goes, he actually works in a psychiatric hospital as like a, uh, an attendant in some way. And he starts helping. He starts seeing these ment- mentally ill people. A lot of them are alcoholics. And he starts, he's, he's on fire. He's on absolute fire. And the mother writes New York and says, you're not going to believe this. My son got sober. The son ultimately writes Ruth Hawk. They're writing back. And they say, first guy to get sober off the text, send his ass out here. We want to meet him. And they pop him. Uh, they, uh, well, actually, he wrote his story. I, I believe his mother helped or Ruth Hawk helped with writing his story. His story is called Lone Endeavor. Experience, Strength, and Hope. Lone Endeavor. And it's Pat Cooper. Pat Cooper. He takes the bus from the West Coast, shows up at New York. Bill's there. Fitz Mayo's there. Hank Parkhurst is there waiting for him to come off the bus. All the people come off. No one comes off. And they go to the driver. They go, what's going on? Is there anybody else in the bus? Oh, yeah, there's a drunk in the back. He's... So his story got pulled out. It, it made the first... But okay, right. <clears throat> By the end, uh, by the end of 19... 19th... I think the story ended well, though. I think later on he got sober. By the end of 1939, it was estimated that 800 alcoholics were on their way to recovery. In the spring of 1940... John D. Rockefeller Jr. gave a dinner for many of his friends, to which he invited AA members to tell their stories. So uh, 75 people accepted uh, uh, the invitation. He sent out invitations to 187. Only 75, right, because he told them it was about alcoholics, right? Nobody's going, right? He sends it out to 187 people. 75 accept. Nine of them are AA guys. So that's a low turnout. Like, I'd be very upset at my guest list, right? News of this got out on the world wires. Inquiries poured in again, and many people went to the bookstores to get the book Alcoholics Anonymous. By March 1941, the membership had shot up to 2,000. Then Jack Alexander wrote a feature article in Saturday Evening Post. 
and placed such a compelling picture of AA before the general public that alcoholics in need of help really deluged us. By the close of 1941, AA numbered 8,000 members. The mushrooming process was in full swing. AA had become a national institution. Our society then entered a fearsome and exciting adolescent period. The test that it faced was this. Could these large numbers of erstwhile erratic alcoholics successfully meet and work together? So erstwhile, formally, erratic, unpredictable, no fixed or regular course, formally unpredictable alcoholics. Would there be strivings for power and prestige? Would there be schisms that would split AA apart? Soon, AA was beset by these very problems on every side and in every group. But out of this frightening and at first disrupting experience, the conviction grew that AAs had to hang together or die separately. So now for the next sentence and the whole rest of the next paragraph, it's all the traditions. Watch them. We had to unify our fellowship or pass off the scene as we discovered the principles by which the individual alcoholic could live, meaning the steps, right? So we had to evolve principles by which the AA groups and AA as a whole could survive and function effectively. It was thought that no alcoholic man or woman could be excluded from our society that our leaders might serve but never govern, that each group was to be autonomous and there was to be no professional class of therapy. There were to be no fees or dues. Our expenses were to be met by our own voluntary contributions. There, were, there was to be the least possible organization, even in our service centers. Our pu public relations were to be based upon attraction rather than promotion. It was decided that all members ought to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. And in no circumstances should we give endorsements, make alliances, or enter public controversies. This was the substance of AA's 12 traditions, which are stated in full on page 561 of this book. Though none of these principles had the force of rules or laws, they had become so widely accepted by 1950 that they were confirmed by our first international conference held at Cleveland. Today, the remarkable unity of AA is one of the greatest assets that our society has. So we saw that, uh, again, uh, Cleveland was our, uh, was our first international, and we do one every five years. We just did one in Atlanta. Where's our next one? So on the five, so 2015, 2020, where's the next one? Detroit. Was the one after that? Vancouver. <clears throat> Just in case you're putting it in your calendar. <laughs> while while the, while the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, public acceptance of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons. I underline this. Let's see what the first reason is. The large number of recoveries, so successes, people got sober. That's, the, that's one reason. And 
reunited homes. In other words, how it affected the rest of the world. Just getting sober on our own, but leaving the world, you know, in disarray, our family, you know, the whole bit. You know, sometimes you can't save those things initially, but you can have, you know, positive interactions later on after a period of time, right? That's what made this the principal reason why this thing grew. Personal recovery and fixing um, uh, other, uh, helping to improve other people's lives. These made their impressions everywhere of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other Other thousands came to a few AA meetings and at first decided they didn't want the program. But great numbers of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. Another reason, so here's third reason, another reason for the wide acceptance of AA was the administration of friends, administration, the help of friends. Friends in medicine, religion, and the press, together with innumerable others who became our able and persistent advocates. Without such support, AA could have made only the slowest progress Some of the recommendations of AA's early medical and religious friends will be found further on in this book. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization. Neither does AA take any particular medical point of view, though we cooperate widely with the men of medicine as well as with the men of religion. Alcohol being no respecter of persons, we are an accurate cross-section of America and in distant lands... The same democratic evening up process is now going on. By personal religious affiliation, we include Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, and a sprinkling of Muslims and Buddhists. More than 15% of us are women. What's our current stat? 38%. Uh, That was as of uh, 2014. 38%. At present, our membership is pyramiding at a rate of about 20% a year. So far, upon the total problem of several million actual and potential alcoholics in the world, we have, owned, we have made only a scratch. In all probability, we shall never be able to touch more than a fair fraction of the alcohol problem and all its ramifications. Upon therapy for the alcoholic himself... We surely have no monopoly, yet it is our great hope that all those who have yet found no answer may begin to find one in the pages of this book and will presently join us on the high road to a new freedom. Forward to the third edition. You'll note that uh, uh, Bill dies in 1971. First thing you should note is the different tone in the forward to the third edition, which is written in 76. And length. By March 1976, when this edition went to the printer, the total worldwide membership of Alcoholics Anonymous was conservatively estimated at more than 1 million, with almost 28,000 groups meeting in over 90 countries. Surveys of groups in the United States and Canada indicate that AA is reaching out not only to more and more people, but to a wider and wider range. Women now make up more than one-fourth of the membership, 
Among newer members, the proportion is nearly one-third. 7% of the AAs surveyed are less than 30 years of age, among them many in their teens. The basic principles, meaning the steps, they're talking about the steps, the basic principles of the AA program, it appears, hold good for individuals with many different lifestyles, just as the program has brought recovery to those of many different nationalities. The 12 steps that summarize the program may be called Los Doches Pesos in one country and Le Dos Etapas in another. But they trace exactly the same path to recovery, meaning the steps are the same. That was, bla that was blazed by the earliest members of Alcoholics Anonymous. In spite of the great increase in the size and span of this fellowship, at its core, it remains simple and personal. Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. What it was like, what happened, what it's like now, right? Forward to the fourth edition. This fourth edition of Alcoholics Anonymous came off the press in November 2001 at the start of a new millennium. Since the third edition was published in 1976, worldwide membership of AA has just about doubled to an estimated 2 million or more with nearly 100,800 groups meeting in approximately 150 countries around the world. So a 2015 number is... 2.4 million members, 2.4 million. Literature has played a major role in AA's growth and a striking phenomenon of the past quarter century has been the explosion of translations of our basic literature into many languages and dialects. In country after country where the AA seed was planted, it has taken root slowly at first then growing by leaps and bounds when literature has become available. So that's really uh, uh, pinpointing uh, the, the author's belief that literature was instrumental in our, in our spread. Currently, Alcoholics Anonymous has been translated into 43 languages. As the message of recovery has reached larger numbers of people, it has also touched the lives of a vastly greater variety of suffering alcoholics. When the phrase, we are people who normally would not mix, page 17 of this book, was written in 1939, it referred to a fellowship composed largely of men and a few women with quite similar social, ethnic, and economic backgrounds. And what they're really talking about is everybody came off of the Oxford group initially, not everybody, but that's how we originated. And they were primarily white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and almost all were middle class or upper, upper middle class, doctor, lawyer, stockbroker, business person. Like so much of AA's basic text, those words have proved to be far more visionary than the founding members could ever have imagined. The stories added to this section represent, excuse me, to this edition represent a membership whose characteristics of age, gender, race, and culture have widened and have deepened to encompass virtually everyone the first hundred members could have hoped to reach. 
while our literature has preserved the integrity of the AA message, sweeping changes in society as a whole are reflected in new customs and practices within the fellowship. That speaks to flexibility to me. Taking advantage of technological advances, for example, AA members with computers can participate in meetings online, sharing with fellow alcoholics across the country or around the world. In any meeting, anywhere, AAs share experience, strength, and hope with each other in order to stay sober, one, and help other alcoholics, two, and that's the order. Modem to modem or face to face, AA speak the language of the heart in all its power and simplicity. We're in, um, we're in doctor's opinion tonight. Thank you, brother. And that is Roman numeral 25, XXV. Unless you're in the third edition, I think you're two pages off, but that's a separate thing. Okay, here we go. The doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous, remember, multiple authors, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men and here's the important part of that sentence, who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. That means not the dermatologist, right? That means physicians or medical people that have experience in the realm of alcoholism. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. There are multiple copies of the original letter, just a photocopy of it. You feel free to take that, but we're going to read the letter in the text. To whom it may concern, the date on this is 72738. 72738. I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. Who's I? Dr. Silkworth. So he has worked with, uh, he has been at Towns Hospital as medical director for nine years when he writes this letter. He's the medical director at Towns Hospital nine years. He's actually a neurologist, which is uh, the study of brain and nervous system. In late 1934, I attended a patient, Bill Wilson, who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, how many treatments did Bill get? Four. Tricky, isn't it? Yeah, whenever I ask you a question, it's a trick, so don't just go with the easy one. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. 
This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. This is not the first time we're seeing this in the text. We saw it in the forward to the first edition. What have we recovered from? Seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. I personally, and you can find the proof of that looking in the forward of the first edition, right? I personally know scores. A score is 20, so it's plural. It's at least 40. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type who, with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. Who the hell knows what epoch means? I didn't know, so I looked it up. And I always take my definition from this dictionary only because the, the definitions are geared towards 1939 usage, right? So epoch is a period of time made special by someone or something. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Not the stock market, not where to get your car repaired, about their own experience. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, M.D. So I'd just like to show you, this is a picture of our kind little doctor, Dr. Silkworth. If you can't see it, if it's, you know, kind of crappy, but you come up and see it later on. But that's Dr. Silkworth. And again, he was the medical director at Towns Hospital. This is the front door of Towns Hospital, 292 and eventually 293 also, Central Park West. This is an upmarket detox facility, right? And uh, you saw the letter there, but there's the letter, right? You can come and take a copy of it. And uh, we'll continue. The physician who at our request gave us this letter. So now it's back to the big book authors uh, uh, speaking. Have been, has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is cutting-edge stuff in 39. Almost everybody believed it was a mental issue. That if you would just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can get your handle on this thing and stop the shenanigans. So this is cutting-edge stuff. So this is where Dr. Silkworth is... is, is uh, Bill is alluding to Dr. Silkworth's uh, theory that this is a disease. This is a, an allergy, mental and physical. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor 
is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. There's a little change uh, that was done in the first 164. What did it used to say before ex-problem drinkers? This, who has that first edition? I saw somebody was using a first edition last week. Uh, it used to say ex-alcoholic, but that implies cure. So they changed it to ex-problem drinker. So if you're looking for a change in the first 164, there's one. I'll read that again. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on on the spiritual, that would be prayer and meditation, as well as the altruistic, that's the service part of our solution, right? As well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. So you see what the big book authors are saying there. Although this is a spiritual solution, we are completely in a line with the medical necessities of somebody, i.e. going to a detox. What's the only drug that you can detox from and die? Alcohol. You can detox yourself on heroin. You can detox yourself on crack. Now, you may have seizures. You may have manifestations that are not good, but the fatality rate is almost zero. Booze, pretty high. So, who knows the name of the first person that did not go to a hospital? There was a huge debate. One guy came in. He did not have the physical symptoms as strongly as these low-bottom drunks. I'll tell you, it's Warren C. in spring of 39. Spring of 39. First guy to not go to a hospital, not go to detox, caused the big rigmarole. Can't, it's impossible. He can't do that. He's not, he's not a low-bottom drunk. He'll never get sober. He's not, really a, he does, he's not really an alcoholic. That caused the big debate. Warren C. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So that's all big book authors. Back to Dr. Silkworth. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years experience as medical director, and again, it's Towns Hospital, it's nine years, of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was, therefore, a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology, this means some sort of brain therapy, some sort of working on the guy's brain, was of urgent importance to alcoholics. But its application, in other words, how to elicit it, how to get the result, presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good 
that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And I think that term powers of good could be synonymous with powers of the spirit. Things you can't see. It's not tangible. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book, Bill Wilson, came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented. So who's we? First, Dr. Silkworth, that's the voice who's speaking. And it's also the owner of the detox, Charlie Towns. Charlie Towns and Dr. Silkworth agreed that Bill could ultimately talk to patients. Here's a nice classic picture of Bill. And when we do the history presentation, we got a a bunch of pictures that are not typically seen of Bill. Something to look forward to. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, capital P, talking about God now, right? And still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. And this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average drinker. Notice the word never. And what's the problem with the phenomenon of craving? What have we found out that that really means now? It's a metabolism issue. It's an acetone issue. We don't break down the booze past acetone. The next step would be a simple carbohydrate. We jam up right there. So our body just keeps telling, yo, you need another one. You need another one. You need another one. So that's, that's really what we're talking about is a metabolism problem. Let's look at that first sentence there. It says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago. So this is being written in, in um, 39. This part of the, this uh, Silkworth's contribution is written in 39. He's basing it on a publication he sent into the medical journal, Medical Record, dated March 17, 37. And he goes into detail about just the things he's talking about here. It's, a, it's like five pages, so I only made a few copies. So if you take one and the person next to you asks for a copy, you have to make them a copy. Okay, so uh, alcoholism as a manifestation of allergy, written in 37. So that's what he's saying, so suggested a few years ago. He's alluding to this. uh, These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, 
once having lost their self-confidence, this means all self-will, if I decide I'm not going to have Carvel anymore and I'm able to not have Carvel, that's my self-will. If I decide I can't have Carvel and I can't stop having Carvel, I'm beyond human aid. It's not a self-will thing anymore. It's gone. I, I've lost. It's a mental obsession. I am obsessed with that little whale. That car, I'm obsessed with it. Right? But if I can stop, it's self-will. It's the positive use of self-will. If I can't, then it's not self-will anymore. I've lost, I'm powerless over Carvel. Their reliance upon human, things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. This is our whole thing with unmanageability. Unmanageability isn't the DWI. It's the example of living an unmanageable life. What's an unmanageable life? One lived on self-will. We're powerless over everything. Are we powerless over Hurricane Sandy, losing our job, getting a divorce, getting sick, kid getting into the right school? We're powerless over all of it. We can do the next right thing, but we don't really control it. If we feel as though we can put our heads down and control everything, our life will be always unmanageable, even while not drinking. 20 years sober, you can be unmanageable. Restless, irritable, and discontented because it's a self-will life. That's the whole key with that step. I thought it was apropos where we were. <laughs> Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. I interpret that as depth meaning spiritual, rich. You can keep peeling the onion back and wait. It's progressive and it's fatal. If the whole medical part of the thing is you're screwed, right? So there's the weight, the weightiness of it, the depth is the fact that it, it's a rich spiritual concept. In nearly all these cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up around them. So what's altruistic? Giving selfless, giving of oneself with, without an expectation of a return. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. That's all mental stuff. Unless they can uh, again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again. So in other words, the mental obsession pushes them back to the drink. 
after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomena of craving develops, the physical, the physical aspect, the, the uh, phenomena of craving, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. So what's the psychic change? It's a complete transformation. It's doing a 180. It's a complete different way of looking at the world. It's a spiritual experience. It's in a spiritual awakening, right? I have no money in the checking account. My kid's flunking out of college. I'm going to lose my job. And the house is in foreclosure. One way of looking at it is not in a spiritual way, and one is looking at it after the spiritual uh, uh, transformation, the psychic change. One, we're all right with it. We just need to do the next right thing. It does not mean there's now money in my checking account, the bank is leaving me alone, boss said everything's cool, and Harvard called, we're all good. It does not mean that. It's a perspective change. Circumstances are irrelevant. Very important. Very important. Um, and then we did the, uh, this is repeated over and over. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Crazy. That's crazy. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. Notice the circumstances didn't change. It's just his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that that being that required to follow a few simple rules. What are the rules? Right there. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it often is not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. So Silkworth is in the premier detox facility. He's at the top of his game. He was doing this stuff during World War I, right? What's his success rate? 2%, his number. 2%. Imagine going to work every day and putting your whole heart and soul in it, and you're successful 2% of the time. I do not hold that th with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date. 
favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date. And then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They're not drinking to escape. It was something that was in their favor. They were going to hit a home run. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Now, there he's using the word craving in in the physical sense and in the mental sense. We typically don't do that. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomena of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight, meaning to go to their death, supreme sacrifice, right? The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, number one, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. I've never found one guy that said that was me. Never found one guy. So number one is the psychopaths. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision, which we see in step three, right? There is the type of man who is, number two, unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There is the type who always believes that, number three. After being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. Number four, there is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are types, this is number five and everybody thinks they're number five, Entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. Everybody's five. I I don't get that. (laughs) So all these and many others that he's not describing have one symptom in common, and I underline this twice. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be a manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. I don't care what Pax Prentice I don't care what the guy on Malibu uh, uh, Spa says that acupuncture is going to do for me. I don't care about that. We have, we, it has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. So what does that mean? No cure. No cure. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a pickle, never a cucumber again. You can't go backwards. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Why? 
Look at all of the businesses that were based upon curing this guy's problem. And the, the, the funny thing about it is if it's a moderate drinker or a heavy drinker, you may be successful. Bellevue, you may go through their program and hit a home run. You may be sober at the end, but you weren't a real alcoholic. Why do we know that? Because we define it. You're beyond human aid. We defined it. No one else can. So if you're able to stop and stay stopped on your own, you weren't an alcoholic. Very, very significant. <laughs> Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. Nice. What? What was that? Was that? Yeah, nice. Doomed. Well, you know, this is the only disease that the worse you are, the higher success rate. Right? You come skipping down the steps. Right? Low success rate. You come hopeless, bottom, took my home, DWI, wife kicked me out, husband took, every, took the checkbook, I got nothing. Success goes up. What is the solution? It's kind of a little tease, right? Because he's not going to tell us. We're going to have to wait. You're going to have to come back. What is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought to me treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might to say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Ooh, that's good. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me. And I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man bringing brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger. And so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. So uh, this is being written in 39. This is uh, referring to Hank Parkhurst. He gets sober in 35. Hank Parkhurst was instrumental in pushing Bill to, uh, to finish the book. He came up with the works uh, publishing uh, scheme, the stock scheme. Um, he was a uh, assistant uh, a sales manager at Sun Oil, hard pushing, you know, get the job done kind of guy. He wrote the story Unbeliever in the big book. You will not read it in the fourth edition. You'll have to see Sarah afterwards. It's in here. <laughs> Why is it not in the big book? He went out and died drunk. He was on fire working to get the big book put together. As soon as he, the big book was done, he lost purpose. He forgot why he was here to bring it to the next alcoholic. So he died drunk. Hank Parkhurst. 
When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient, the patient had made his own diagnosis. That sounds like us. And deciding, and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort. Unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is a fine specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. So this is, of course, talking about uh, Fitz Mayo, our Southern gentleman. His story is in the fourth edition, so we know he stayed sober. They just recently found out he had like one slip, which, uh, which came to light recently. But one small slip, Fitz Mayo started uh, AA uh, Washington, D.C., founded AA Washington, D.C., and uh, was also instrumental in the big book sounding a little bit more biblical than college than like a college textbook. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, MD. I'm going to stop there tonight. All right, we're going to go to a show. Chapter 1, Bill's Story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. And we were flattered when the first citizens took us into their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. So let's just stop there for a second. Let's get ourselves oriented to what the heck we're talking about. Let's get a timeline here. Um, so let's deal with the first line. War fever ran high. What war? World War One. So basically, World War One is 1914 to 1918, but the U.S. does not get in until 1917. We get in late in the game. So Bill's voice in writing in, in this is 1917. So the New England town, sticking with that first line, the New England town is referring to is New Bedford, Mass. It's a port town. And his army uh, regiment is waiting there to ship out to end up over in England. So we're in New Bedford, Mass., and they've just gone to line two and three. They've just come from 
Plattsburgh, New York. Plattsburgh is sometimes spelt with an E at the end. It's the same place, but Plattsburgh, New York. And he, they, he just trained as an Army officer. He's a second lieutenant artillery. And um, he's at uh, Fort, uh, Fort Rodman. So uh, they're waiting to ship out. And uh, what he's uh, alluding to here is that the, um, the society families have invited the officers over for cocktails. And um, we're going to see what happens when that, uh, when that transpires. I was part of life at last. And the midst, in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. So what we're talking about here is Bill's first drink. First drink ever, 1917. I have um, a little photo here. You can come later on and see it. But um, it is uh, Norwich Academy. This is where he trained as, uh, as a military college. Also in Vermont, Norwich Academy. It's the oldest private military academy still uh, in existence. And uh, Bill, uh, when he's, uh, while he's there, he's actually in the Vermont National Guard. And as soon as war is declared in 1917 by the U.S., he becomes a U.S. Army officer, second lieutenant artillery. That's him and his, and his uh, duds. So he's discovered liquor. How does he discover liquor? He's been invited to one of these cocktail parties. What's his first drink? A Bronx cocktail, it's called. And I know you're dying to know what's in it. So it's gin, sweet vermouth, dry vermouth, and OJ. In the 1930s, it becomes the number three most popular worldwide cocktail, probably due to Bill's partaking. Right? In the 30s, he's, he's drinking it in 1917, but in the 30s, it's voted the number three most popular cocktail internationally. So where does he have the drink? Obviously, New Bedford, Mass., but this is the mansion he drinks it in. The Grinnells have invited him over, and he has his first drink. And as you can see, this truly is a mansion, the Grinnell Mansion. And uh, what happens in his first time drinking? Throws up. First time out of the gate. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink, meaning his family. In time, we sailed for over there, meaning Europe, meaning England specifically. They go from New Bedford, Mass. They go down to New York, pick up some more troops or supplies or whatever the heck, and they ship out over to England to prepare to go into France where the battle is. This is the ship he goes out on. This is an English transport ship, the HMT Lancashire, HMT, Her Majesty's Transport. You can come up and see that later on. I know it's not a clear picture, but um, he's nervous when he's on the ship. He's afraid he's not going to be a good leader, right? He's got relatives that were in the Civil War that really showed their grit, and he's concerned he's not going to be able to live up to it. There's a, there's a background story on what happens on the ship, but we won't do it tonight. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel on an old tombstone. Actually, the tombstone was a replacement, but it was originally written in 1764. And he says, it says, here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. 
A good soldier is ne'er forgot, whether he dieth by musket or by pot. And for those interested, this is a, uh, a replacement tombstone. This is the replacement done. It was replaced a couple of times, but this is from 1966. It was replaced again, that same soldier. And you can see that although he only read it a couple times, he got the gist of it. I'm actually impressed. Years later, he remembered what it said. Ominous warning, which I fail to heal. Heed, 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. Do we know what this token of appreciation was? He got a watch, a ring, and a chain. I'm working on a couple of them, but here's the ring, and you can see the inscription if you want to come up later on. But the men gave him... Uh, some nice uh, tokens uh, for their appreciation of him being a good officer to them. They also gave it to his, uh, 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 his captain. Both of them received something. My talent for leadership, I imagined, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would imagine, which, which I would manage with utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for a surety company. So he took a night law, law course. We're now talking 1921 to 24. He took this course at Brooklyn Law School, and he ends up with a job with the U.S. Fidelity and Guarantee Company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. So here's the first reference to Lois. It's sort of the classic picture of Lois. Later on in life, this is not in 1921-24. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. Did he actually graduate? No. He did not, and here's the gig behind that. They had a weird rule that you had to pick up the diploma in person, but the true alcoholic finished the course, right? He was drunk at that, that exam he told you about. He went back and he finished it. But they had a rule that said you had to pick it up in person. He said, I'm not picking it up. Never got it. And that was their, that was their rule for graduation. I don't know if I read this. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. 
I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. One of the reasons uh, Lois was uh, sort of into going on this trip was because she had learned over a period of time that every time she got Bill out of the city and camping or on a road trip, drinking dramatically reduced. She thought that was going to fix him. Help fix him. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of financial reference service. So here's a picture of Bill and Lois with their Harley, with the sidecar. And you'll also see some pictures when we do the history presentation, you'll see some pictures of her actually driving the, uh, the, the, the motorcycle too. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had some success at speculation, so we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. This reference is to a, uh, a farm they worked on in Schenectady, New York. They were doing the whole East Coast. He's going to look at all the major factories and uh, businesses and make reports back to Wall Street and hopefully make something for himself. And they're up in, um, they're up in the Schenectady area. And uh, Ella Goldfoot, Goldfoot's farm, uh, took them in. Lois did a lot of housekeeping stuff. Uh, uh, Bill worked out in the fields and did a bunch of um, farm-type uh, manual labor. But the beauty of this and why he stayed so long was the wife, the, the uh, wife and husband, had two sons that worked for GE. And he convinced them in the bar at night to let him on the property, and he got a look into the factories to see how far ahead of the game General Electric was. They were 10 years ahead of the, everybody else. He knew a little bit about radio stuff, and if you go up to his house in Vermont, in East Dorset, Vermont, you can see a little radio he built himself as a kid. So he had some radio knowledge. So he gave the thumbs up to GE. Probably a good call, right? <laughs> so that's why they worked there for a month. That was, the la that was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. Uh-oh. The, the exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune through money and applause my way. Now we're talking 1926 to 29. That sentence is referencing that. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Jazz places uptown. He lives in Brooklyn. Why is he up there? Prohibition. 18th Amendment. 18th Amendment goes from 1919 to 1933. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but if his first drink is in 1917 and his last drink is in 34, he only drank legally for about two years. Right? Two and a half years. 
you think about that one, right? Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. So I used our little trusty dictionary for remonstrances, and that's the protests of my friends. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. Why does it say apartment? Should really say apartments, right? Because he rents one and he's making so much money, he rents the one next door and blows out the wall to make it one. This is the kind of money the man's making at that time. At that time, he's uh, living about two or three blocks away from 182 Clinton Street. He and Lois have their own apartment, but it's not sumptuous enough. He makes it into, he makes two into one. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, meaning Manchester, Vermont. My wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Sounds like progression. Golf permitted drinking every day and now every night. It was fun to carome around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. So remember, he lives in East Dorset, Vermont. He's basically a townie. It's six miles away from Manchester, Vermont. Everybody in Manchester, Vermont were summer people, right? They lived in Albany or or New York or Boston or Providence, and they came up just to get out of the city for the summer. Bill lived there all the time, right? But he rubbed elbows with them, but he was really of different stock, right? So this exclusive course that all those summer people had dinners at and played at and the parents were members of, he was never on. And in fact, this is the, uh, this is the course, and this is the Native American way. Uh, we'd normally say equinox, you know, equinox, but this is the Native American way of uh, saying that word. Right? And that's the sign out, that's, that's the current sign, that's a sign outside the, uh, the country club. I acquired the impeccable tan of a tan. I, I acquired the impeccable coat of a tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno. I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ 32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. I was finished. It was 52 and it's down to 32. Why is he finished? I know it's down $20 a share, but why is he finished? He bought it on margin, right? So once it goes below a certain level, 
It, it's a margin call. They sell you out. They want to get their money back. They lend you the money to buy the number of shares you got. So not only are you, do you have zero, you owe whatever the difference is that you borrowed. The papers reported men jumping to debt. Oh, I'm sorry. And what was the stock? It says XYZ. That's phony. What was it? Panic and Ford. Who said it? Panic and Ford. Uh, corn syrup products, maple syrup, stuff that Bill was familiar with. Growing up in Vermont, he actually even made maple syrup. He, he, he harvested it from trees. So he knew a little bit about the gig. Panic and Ford. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. Notice he capitalized it, meaning it's a false god. They're, that, they're worshiping at that altar. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million. I thought you'd like that. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I better go to Canada. So this is Dick Johnson. He's actually a partner. Him and another guy are partners of Green Shields and Company. It's a brokerage house up in Canada, a, a medium-sized brokerage house. And he offers Bill a job. So he's all hooked up again. United States, they're going into depression. He gets a nice job up in Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. Now, you know, Elba and St. Helena, Helena, whichever you prefer, were both places where Napoleon was uh, put as a detainment, right? He escaped from Elba. I believe he died at, at, at St. Uh, Helena. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. Progression. We went to live with my wife's parents, so... Uh, Bill's uh, wife's parents are a doctor and Mrs. Burnham. And they go to Brooklyn Heights and they go to 182 Clinton Street. And this is the brownstone, still there. And this is where also where Lois was born. <clears throat> I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to to draw no to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath my wife began to work in a department store coming home exhausted to find me drunk so this is her uh macy's uh department store days this is from 31 to 34 she works in macy's 31 to 34 <clears throat> i became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Progression. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day and often three, got to be routine. Why did we call it bathtub gin? Very close. Sam, Sam was really close on that one. So it was made in the traditional still sort of way, but it was pure alcohol at the end. It was pure alcohol at the end. They're not giving you a bottle of pure alcohol. They give you this much alcohol but the bottle wouldn't fit in the sink. They wanted to add water to it. Where would it fit? Bathtub. Bathtub gin. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars. 
and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. Not his other debts, at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. Progression. A tumbler full of gin, followed by a half dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety, which renewed my wife's hope. Working on self-will still, right? He's going to bull his way through this thing. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder, meaning the 182 Clinton. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1934, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and the chance vanished. So we know this little backstory, right? This is the story where he gets this group together, and they said, no, Jim, uh, they go, Bill. I, I was talking to myself. Did you see that? <laughs> they said, Bill, you drink too much, and you're going to screw this thing up. But I'm going to make a contract. If you drink one drink during this gig, you're out. You lose everything. You forfeit the whole gig. He says, no problem. Give me the paper. And he signs with full confidence. And he's sitting at night. They had done some sort of business uh, shenanigans. They're sitting around playing cards or something. And somebody passes around Jersey Lightning. Joe, Joe and Charlie do this little skit. They do it better than me. So they pass around this bottle of Jersey Lightning. And Bill says, nah, I'm not drinking tonight. Goes around again. No, nope, I'm not drinking tonight. So he's using self-will, right? Goes around the third time or some number of times. And he's, ah, you know what? I've never had Jersey Lightning before. Takes the drink and loses the whole gig on the spot. And Jersey Lightning is Applejack for those who are interested. And you can, you can ferment that all the way down and keep distilling it all the way down to like 30, 40 proof. <clears throat> I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises. But my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so did I. And that was the first sheet that we're referring to tonight. And that's uh, Bill's sweet promises. The ones that are dated, the four that are dated, are all written in the family Bible. Bill writes in the family Bible. This is to you, honey. I will not drink. I won't read them just to use time. You read them yourself. But these are the things he says in the Bible to say, I am not going to do this thing. And then the last one is a subsequent letter that he writes. And what did all of them end with? Failure. So good intention doesn't get you anything. So sweet promises. Take a copy before you leave. Interesting. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. So he doesn't have the solution, which means he doesn't have a defense against the first drink. Mental obsession will always bring him back to the drink because he's still working on self-will. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. 
Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head I told myself I would manage better next time. But I might as well get good and drunk then and I did. So again, we're, we're still in 1932. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared to cross the street, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that, so two bottles... And oblivion. I read that mental fog as depression. I, that's how I read it. He was subject to depression. I'm reading between the lines there. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for, for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Those are geographics, right? Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leapt. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. Progression. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking. And I was 40 pounds underweight. And those of you who've seen pictures of Bill, he couldn't afford 30, 40 pounds underweight. Right? My brother-in-law is a physician. And through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. So here we're talking about Bill's brother-in-law, married to his sister Dorothy. This is Dr. Leonard Strong, a physician. So Dr. Strong, Dr. Strong and Bill's mother. This is a younger picture, Emily, Bill's mother. And Dr. Strong were instrumental in getting Bill into Towns Hospital. Towns Hospital, these two doors at the bottom, 292, 293 Central Park West. I did this picture the other day in another big book presentation. Somebody's in the room. She lived upstairs. This is an apartment, but she, this was her address. She goes, 292 Central Park, that's mine. You can't make stuff like that up. It's just... 
under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. And that's why I left you with the belladonna cure. This is merely from Wikipedia. I just copied and pasted and cleaned it up a little bit. You can Wikipedia it. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish, we're going to hear that word a lot, and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. And why is that cutting edge? Because up to that point, very, very few people thought it was a bodily problem. They thought it was only pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get a grip on this thing, buddy. They did not look at it as the phenomenon of craving, which was the Silkworth uh, allergy theory, right? So you can also take that. And the, the doctor they're talking about there is Silkworth, obviously. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will, meaning self-will, is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. Isn't that the tricky thing? That we can really fight our way through so many different things, but when it gets to booze, we can't. That's, that's the definition of a real alcoholic. Part of it, anyway. My incredible behavior in the face of a, of a desperate desire to stop was explained. In other words, Bill's saying, I understand it now. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer. Self-knowledge. But it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank much once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health, health fell off like a ski jump. Ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. So our first reference uh, under my brother-in-law, a physician, they place him in a nationally known hospital. That's the fall of 33. That's Bill's detox in Towns Hospital, first attempt, fall of 33. He's now saying towards the end of the page, I return to the hospital. This is July of 34. This is number two. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens. Or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now, his number three time in two towns is not real clear. So what I do is I underline the word now here. These are only five-day stints, right? So he does one and two, and he's out, right? He's out of the hospital as this next word comes. It's not clear in the text, but we know because we have the receipts from his from uh, uh, coming out of the hospital. We know the dates, right? Now, 
I was to plunge into the dark. He's out of the hospital. Joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before, I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Not clear. He goes back into the hospital for three. Stay with me here. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. This is September of 34. This is third visit. So between that word now that I had you underline and trembling, he went in and came out. Third visit. September of 34. It's not clear in the text. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. On Armistice Day, November 11th, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. So I took my little trusty dictionary, which I think is a great little tool. Again, the reason why I'm hot on it, it's in the context context of 1939 definition. Fourth dimension, something outside the range of ordinary experience, a dimension in addition to the three rectangular dimensions of length, breadth, and depth, which is often considered to be time, outside of time. Big spiritual phrase is usually, right? Okay, we're going we're gonna to go right here now. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. We're going to end there tonight, and that's where we're going to start with Ebby's visit the first thing next week. So you got to come back right there. Okay, Tim, alcoholic. We're going to continue on with Bill's story at the bottom of page eight. Bottom of page eight. Last week, we saw that Bill had already been to Towns Hospital three times. He was the first time in the fall of 33, the second time July 34, third time September 34, and now we're at the very bottom of the page, page eight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. So our... uh, our little background story here is what we're talking about is uh, Ebby Thatcher, and this is uh, Bill's old school friend, and uh, in actuality, he only went to school with Bill one year, ninth grade, and that's because Ebby was actually from Albany. That's, that's uh, uh, Ebby on, on your right. This is a younger picture of him, And that one was from 1955 at the convention, him and Bill. So um, he only was uh, a school uh, chum of Bill's for one year, ninth grade. 
Evie actually lived in Albany. That's where the family was from. And uh, Bill was from East Dorset, Vermont, but went to Manchester, Vermont for high school to Burr and Burton Seminary. In, in more modern times, it's called Burr and Burton Academy. This is the picture in front of the school, still there, very upscale sort of high school. Not my type of high school, but, you know, this was, this was someplace that um, people with a few dollars went to. And um, the reason Ebby went there was because Ebby was having trouble in Albany. And the family said, let's get him the heck out of here and let's get him over to Burr and Burton and maybe they'll straighten him out. But he only did one year there. However, Bill knew Ebby already because Ebby was a summer guy, right? His family came up to Manchester every year. Bill lived in East Dorset, six miles away, but he lived there all the time. But during the summer, these are the guys that he would hang around with in Manchester. In actuality, Bill's best friend was Lois's brother, Rogers. That was Bill's best friend. Okay, so that just gives us a little background story there. And our next line is, he was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. So again, a little background story to this is um, Ebby in, the, in, his, in his absolute bottom. He's living in the, in the family summer house. It's all closed up. And he's living in one room in this house in the winter. And uh, he's at his absolute bottom. And um, the rule in the law in Vermont at the time is, is if you get convicted of three alcohol-related offenses, you are automatically sent for a six-month commitment to an asylum. And uh, it's, once you're in, it's tough to come out. You know what I mean? So you did not want this to happen. And we're going to see what transpired. Of course he would have dinner. And then I could drink openly with him. What does that mean? He's, Bill is hiding his drinking. Now he can drink openly when Ebby comes by. Unmindful of his welfare. What's that? Self-centeredness. Doesn't care about how it affects him. He's sober, but I'm going to drink anyway. I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag, meaning a drunk, right? So that little story is um, Bill is in Albany with Abby, and they're drinking all night. And there's an airfield that just opened up in Manchester six months prior. And only a few flights have come in there. And in fact, here's a photo I took of it. It's, it's not as, it's even less clear than some of the others. I believe it, I took this with a Blackberry. But, so this is a, a phone uh, uh, a photo, but you can come up later on and see it. It's a grass airfield, so it's small little private planes. Still in existence now, not used much at all. But, um, so they're in Albany, they're drinking all night, and they get the bright idea, let's fly to Manchester. So who are they drinking with? They're drinking with a pilot, Ted Burke. And they convinced this guy in the morning, we're, the three of us, we're going to fly to Manchester. So uh, they radio ahead and say that they're going to be, you know, they're going to be landing in, in Manchester. And one of the town socialites, Mrs. Orvis, as in Orvis fly fishing, right, says, wow, we, we, we've got a flight coming in here. Let's get the uh, high school band down there. Let's make a big deal about this thing, right? This is important. We're going to generate revenue. We're going to, you know, people are going to be flying in. We're going to be big. 
So they get the band, they're all out there, the three of them come off the plane, and they're all shot. You know, like just complete embarrassment. And in fact, uh, Bill has to write her a letter, uh, you know, a couple of days later after he got over the, the hangover, but he wrote an apology letter to Mrs. Orvis. So uh, he's, he's referring back to those great times, you know. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had gotten into the fellow. He wasn't himself. What was Bill drinking? Right. And we can go one step further and with pineapple juice. Gin and pineapple juice. That was the drink he pushed forward. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smiling. He said, I've got religion. I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So um, he's visiting Bill in 182 Clinton in, uh, in uh, Brooklyn Heights. Uh, as it, it's alluded to, he has not seen Bill for a while. And uh, when he shows up there, he actually is living in Manhattan. And where is he living? Where is Bill? Where is Ebby living in Manhattan? At the Oxford Mission, right? He's living at the Oxford Mission. It's over on the east side on 23rd Street, right by the water. Block off the water. And uh, it's a direct relationship. It's an Oxford group uh, creation. So there's the Ox Oxford group, which meets at Calvary Church. And Oxford House, so it's, 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 the, it's the sanctuary, is the main church, 21st Street and Park Avenue South. And then around the corner is, is a very large door, and that's, uh, that's Calvary House. And that's where all of the Oxford group members would meet. Calvary Mission was where people that were homeless could uh, testify on a daily basis for a bed that night. They would do a whole missionary little process which would earn you a bed for the night. Ebby lived there as a member of the Brotherhood, sort of a supervisor of this thing. And I believe there were 12 of them, and I think there were 30-something beds. So men came in homeless, almost all alcoholic, I'm guessing that. Many were alcoholics, and they would earn a bed for the night. And these supervisors, the Brotherhood, would take care of the place. And would have a bed themselves then too, but a permanent bed, right? So Ebby's uh, gotten sober through the Oxford group, which we're going to talk about in a second. He's living there. He's learned through the Oxford group, and we're going to see the five C's in a little while. You can take a, a copy when you leave. He's learned that the only way you keep this thing is to pass it on. So he's going to Bill to pass it on. Watch what happens. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. So um, 
this gets us back to the uh, to the statement up front uh, on the top of the page about uh, did he escape? I thought he was locked up, thought he was committed due to uh, alcoholic insanity. Well, what had happened to him was that <clears throat> there were there were two guys hanging around with each other, and that was Zebra Graves and Shep Cornell. The two of them were hanging around with each other, and another uh, character who was living up there was Roland Hazard. Roland Hazard lived about 15 miles south of Manchester, and Zebra and, and Shep were staying in Manchester. It's, it's, um, it's their vacation. They're just hanging around, right? But the three of them know each other from the Oxford group. And both Zebra and Shep go and see Ebby. They hear that this is going to happen, uh, that he could potentially be locked up for alcoholic insanity. And they want to go to him and help him. And basically, Ebby's not really having much to do with it. It's not really resonating for him. And both Shep and Zebra uh, go to Roland and propose to him that when uh, Ebby has to go before the judge, that Roland comes. Roland's an older man more established, a big Rhode Island family, a wealthy Rhode Island family, and thought that that would have a lot of credence. And uh, as luck would have it, if we're talking about luck, who's the judge in the case? Zebra Graves' father, Judge Graves. So Roland and Zebra show up at the trial and convince the judge to turn Ebby over to Roland's care. So that's how he avoids getting sent to the asylum. So as soon as he gets Ebby in his care, Ebby is struck sober like that. Meteoric, right? Within two weeks, Roland has him speaking in the area at various YMCA's and get-togethers and on fire. Just like this guy is pink cloud stuff, right? So, but then it's decided he can't stay there forever. What are we going to do with this guy? And it's suggested, well, let's send him down to New York to work with the Oxford group in their, their uh, New York stronghold, which is Calvary Church, run by Reverend Shoemaker, right? Sam Shoemaker. So they get him down there, and Shep, who wasn't at court, offers to let him live in his apartment for two weeks. Uh, Shep's a stockbroker on Wall Street. And uh, lives there for two weeks, ends up at the mission, and now has a place to, to stay. And um, bottom line is, is that Ebby then gets the opportunity to, um, uh, to go to Bill's house and to uh, see if he can pass this on to him. So a picture of um, Zebra Graves. This is Judge Graves' son. And we have a picture of Shep Cornell. Right, this is the stockbroker that Ebby lived with in his house for two weeks. And then we have a picture of Roland Hazard, your left. This is a, a World War II uh, era picture. But that's Roland Hazard. They had told of a simple religious idea. And a practical program of action. So the simple religious idea is to surrender yourself to a higher power. And the practical program of action, and again, Oxford Group does not have steps. What do they have? They have tenants. There's at least 28 of them. Bill writes about five that he could accept. Here are the five that he could accept. 
which then this morphs into six steps and then morphs into 12 steps, right? So a simple religious idea, surrender to a higher power, and a practical program of action. What is Ebby doing? Ebby is practicing one of the C's in bringing this to, to Bill at the moment, right? That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. So in two months, he's done all of his step work, right? He's spoken at various places, and he's on his first 12-step call. He had come to pass his experience along to me. If I cared to have it, I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. This is key. I had to be, for I was hopeless. This is the setup for step one. Right? This is the setup for Bill's taking step one. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still on still Sundays, way over there on the hillside. What hillside is he talking about? Anybody been up to Vermont to, to Bill's boyhood home? What's the mountain straight across? Mount Aeolus. This is the hillside he's talking about, right? There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. Proffered means to put before someone for acceptance. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up in the, from the past. They made me swallow hard. The wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. Often when people talk about the, the spiritual experience Bill had, they think they're talking about when he's reading the doggerel on the tombstone. No, it's from being inside the cathedral. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation. But that was as far as I had gone. What is Bill going to lead us to now? The differentiation between a spirit of the universe and a personal God. Watch it. With ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. 
To Christ I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. His moral teaching, most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. The wars which had been fought, fought, the burnings and the chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether, on balance, the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, meaning dominant, right? And he certainly had me. But my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed, self-will. Doctors had pronounced him incurable, meaning hopeless. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. That's a description of Bill's taking step one and Ebby's. Admitting complete defeat. I am powerless over alcohol. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. So he's had a psychic change. Had this power originated in him? Obviously, it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that moment, and this was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the table. He shouted great tidings. So what does he mean? He sees the proof. I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Sounds like a spiritual experience, spiritual awakening to me. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. Did you see the difference? He was describing power, energy, spirit, that you, there was no manifestation of it. Creative intelligence, universal mind, spirit of nature. But then he gave it form by calling it, now changing to personal God, he gave it form, czar of the heavens. You can almost image it then. Do you see what he just did with those words? 
I have since talked with scores of men. A score is 20, so it's plural. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. All right, get ready. Here's step two. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point upon a foundation of complete willingness. I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Just took step two. Thus, I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. That's him now switching from the spirit of the universe to a personal God. There's the switch right there. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. He will intercede if you ask. May not be the answer you want. He will intercede. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. But soon, the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so it had been ever since. How blind had I been? So in other words, he has, he recognizes uh, uh, during World War I while he's being shipped out of uh, England to go over to France that he has fear and he humbly asks God to come to him and recognizes now, years later, 1939, right? Years later that in 1917, God came to him because he needed him, wanted and needed him and humbly accepted it. He's just coming to that realization at that point. So we all saw in the very beginning as I started that Bill was there in Towns Hospital three times. He has this information. I just want to of course. You said 1939. Can you explain that again? You, you, you... Uh, the, the fact that he's writing this in 1939. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no problem. So... We know that he's gone three times and he's got all this information now. Can he stop drinking on his own? No. Why? At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. That's his fourth visit back to Towns. That's December 34. Fourth visit to Towns Hospital. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. Let's see step three. There, I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. 
I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. Step three. Here's step four. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend, capital F, take them away, root and branch. So technically that's uh, steps six and seven, right? Steps six and seven there. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my new frowned higher power take them away root and branch. Did I read this? I have not had a drink since. Here's step five. My schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. Here's step eight. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. That was step eight. Never was I to be critical of them. Here's step nine. I was to, to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. Here's step ten. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. Step 11, meditation. I was to sit quietly when in doubt. Step 11, prayer, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend, now meaning Ebby, it's a small f, right? My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems, plural, not just booze. It will solve everything. If you lose your job, should you pray for a new job? Pray for the fear of not having your job to go away, and it can be instantaneous. If you pray for the job, it may be in God's plan for you to get it in six months. Why be in pain six months? Pray for the fear to be removed now. So that you are unblocked to be of maximum service to another alcoholic. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant the destruction of self-centeredness. This is an altruistic movement. This is a program of giving oneself to someone else. It's a program of service. And in fact, when we practice these principles in all our affairs, that is secondary to bringing this message to another alcoholic. Primary. That's the way you stay sober. Bring the message to another alcoholic. And take a service commitment at your group. 
<laughs> right? But you, that service community of the group at the group level doesn't trump bringing it to another alcoholic or working with another alcoholic, right? It's in order on purpose. I, I must turn in all things to the father of light. See, see again how he put imagery there? It's father of light rather than spirit of the universe, personal God. You can almost see father of the light where your spirit of the universe, it's misty, right? He's giving it form. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. And so what we'll see here is this is the description of Bill's white light experience. This is the abridged version, the full version in Pass It On, much more detailed version of it. There was a sense of victory followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. For a moment, I was alarmed and I called my friend, the doctor. Who's the doctor? Silkworth. To ask if I were still sane, he listened in wonder as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you. I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have, who have such experiences. He knows that they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. That's Bill accepting doing step 12. When he walked out, he's saying, when I get out of here, that's what I'm going to do. That's Bill taking step 12. He hasn't actually done it yet, but he's taken it, right? He's agreed to it. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. And if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. My wife and an my wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes near, nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair, 
On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It was a design for living that works in rough going. We commenced to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere, have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted, feuds and bitternesses of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city, Akron, Ohio, and its environments, there are 1,000 of us and our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find fellowship they seek. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. Note, bottom of the page. In 2009, AA is composed of over 116,000 groups. And just a little update on that. We did get the uh, 2014 pamphlet, and it's 115,000. So it's like less meetings, right? No. It's uh, groups now have more meetings per group. You don't need another group. You just add a meeting to a group that's already, you know. An alcoholic in his cups is an unloving creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. So this is the story of Bill Cousins. He lived in uh, uh, 182 Clinton with uh, Bill and Lois. Bill and Lois go down to see Fitz Mayo for a weekend and uh, leave Bill uh, back at the, at the homestead there. And uh, Bill is a, uh, is a Canadian. He's an attorney or maybe a former attorney. And he's uh, a pro bridge player. He's a gambler. So he's, he's a pro professional uh, bridge player. And uh, so he needs money. Anyway, he's hawking some of their best clothing while they're gone. Right? Or they discover he's been doing it a while, right? So depression, can't stop drinking, gambling's probably a, a, an issue in his, in his stress also. But he takes the stove, kicks out the pilot light, turns on the, uh, the gas, and uh, commits suicide that way in their home. <clears throat> there is, however, <laughs> what a great segue. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seeming worldliness and levity, but just underneath there is deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. Most of us feel we need not, we need look no further for utopia, meaning the, the, the perfection, heaven. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Bill W., co-founder of AA, died January 24th, 1971. We'll stop there tonight.